is God? Well, God is the Spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Isn't that how you think of God? Or do you think of God at all? I mean, who He is, and your relationship to Him. It has been said that many Christians do not like to think. It's almost as if thinking is not spiritual. They prefer to concentrate on their feelings. Alistair Begg tells her on holiday visiting a, a church here I had not known before. The worship leader began by asking, how are you all feeling? Thereby, immediately, getting everybody to be subjective. Looking into themselves. Rather than me looking up to God, up to God, taken up with him. And thereby they had forgotten what they had come to do to worship God. And you can worship God, of course, at any time, not just in this, though that's naturally the number one. Are we to worship God? Is it not strange that people could perhaps go to church and forget that they're supposed to be there to worship God? Yet with some people that seems to have happened. They have lost sight of the primary reason for gathering each Lord's Day. You know the Puritans, um, almost all who followed them right up to the 19th century, all believed Saturday night you prepared your soul for something. They said, leave your soul with God on Saturday night, and when you wake on a Sunday morning, it'll still be there. And they had this other lovely illustration, which older folk will recognize and identify with rather than anyone younger. Those of us have cold fires. You remember how sometimes you could at night, I think the expression was, you bank them up. You know, it's here, I'll prove it's right. And then in the morning, you give it a poke and up and blaze. And the Puritan said, you should do that with your soul on a Saturday night. It's a bit like, do you remember in the old days? In church homes, on a Sunday night, Dad would polish all the shoes. Oh, for Sunday morning. So that no one would be special. Now, I have to be honest, I didn't do that. But it's interesting, why was that the case? Because, you see, to worship God was the greatest privilege anyone could have. Anyhow, let's proceed. When the psalmist in Psalm 122, 1, 2, 2 said, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. He said, he, you know, he knew what they meant when they, he said that. I knew what they were talking about when they said, let's go to the house of the Lord. And it was that fact that they were going to the house of the Lord that made the psalmist rejoice. He would go to the house of God where he would give us attention to the Almighty. To praise God, to thank God for all his blessings and to seek forgiveness for all his sins. And because the psalmist knew God, knew who he was, well he naturally wanted to worship him. Notice what I said, he knew God, and was, that was why he wanted to worship him. 
And that's what's crucial in worship of God. Knowing, brothers and sisters, understanding who God is. And it is that will enrich our worship and motivate us to worship. I say that because I think so many believers have forgotten who God is and have become so introverted. Now, the result of that is spiritual impoverishment. That's what happens. So let me remind you who God is, and I will do this with the help of three O's, that's three letter O's, and an S. First, omnipotent. Wow. Each of these three words begins with omnipotent. Which means all. So God is omnipotent. That is, he's all powerful. God never lacks power to do what he wills. He's not like us who often find ourselves saying, I am powerless to help. Even powerless to help yourself in cases are not right. It may be even that we, on, on occasions, now let's be honest, sometimes think, is God powerless to help? For William, he's perhaps in that state. Is God powerless to help? In Jeremiah 32, 17, we read these words of Jeremiah. I love these words. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth. By your great power and outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. Consider the way Jeremiah thinks. It's wonderful, beautiful logic. And he sees, he's using the mind of God given. Puritan said, the way to the heart's through the mind. So he's looked around him and he's looked at the sky and all those stars and the fast host. He says, God did all these things. Obviously, nothing's too hard for him. Now, you've heard me say this before. It's always worth repeating. See, Jeremiah's logic is so simple. Well, God made the heavens and the earth. What's the consequence? Nothing is too hard for him. All your burdens or trials or difficulties, whatever they are, they're not a bit too difficult for God to deal with. Not in the least bit. I think of the words from Isaiah 40, 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He will not go tired or weary. And his understanding no one can fathom. As obviously you see from these words of Isaiah that the people of Israel have lost sight of who God. And there's always unbelief in the mind of Isaiah. And as if he's saying, listen, can I betray you people that you don't know God? Do you not know that the Lord, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, do you know he never grows tired or weary? You do. God never grows. He never grows tired or weary. Why? is omnipotent. Is that something you believe, brothers and sisters? Or is it true that you may just have lost sight of the fact that God is omnipotent and he never grows tired or weary? If that's so, it's no wonder you get anxious 
and I get anxious, and I forget that. Sooner we get anxious and discouraged when we recite the fact, God never was tired, never weary, never needs to breathe, never needs to lie down for a little while. And I'm saying that reverently. He is the Almighty. And if you forget that, won't be soon surprised that you'll become anxious or discouraged. Then you'll be like the people to whom Isaiah is speaking. And he says, oh, what's wrong with you people? You've lost, you've lost something, you've forgotten who God is. And Isaiah regularly had to remind him of who he is. So God is omnipotent. Nothing is too hard Secondly, God is omniscient. He knows all things. It's often the case, is it not, that on first hearing such a word as omniscience, we think, well, what does that mean? And sadly for some people, they switch off. One of our dear friends in the street used to say to me regularly, but you use a lot of big words, and he says, yeah, didn't know I knew any. But there's no problem or difficulty using big words as long as you explain them. Isn't that right? If I just said I'm messy and never explained it, some of you I know would be trying to work out in your head what's he talking about? And that would be a distraction. So, understand the word. Technically the word, the word means very little to us. It's a rather abstract thing. What then is the answer to that? To locate omniscience in the everyday reality of life, which what really matters for you and I, is not right. Mm -hmm. That's why it's important to us. And to do that, I want to, your, to direct your attention to Psalm 139, verses 1 to 4. And what David says is that in that psalm is summed up in the first verse. Oh Lord, you have searched me. And know me, and brothers and sisters, stop and think. In a way, that's quite a kind of a worrying thought, made it not be. Oh Lord, you search me and you know me. In other words, the psalmist says, God knows all about him. God literally knows the psalmist exhaustively. But what does that mean? Well, to answer that question, the psalmist uses some illustrations from everyday life. Our Lord did exactly that, didn't he? That's what made him a great teacher. He used illustrations from the life that everybody, the ordinary everyday life of the people. Behold, a soul and forth the soul. Everybody knows immediately what he's talking about. And this then, as these words, is the psalmist's way of saying, God knows all about the day-by-day -day realities of his life. They are not particularly important things. Nevertheless, they are known to God. God knows when he gets up, when he lies down. They're known by God because God cares for the psalmist. And God is interested in the simplest routine things of everyday life. And it's an illustration of the fact that David's God is not made of wood or stone. 
The God of David is not like the idols mentioned in Psalm 115, verses 5 to 7. These idols have eyes and see not, ears that hear not, lips that speak not. Every year in India, there's a great procession in many cities where all their members' deities are brought out. And they're on big carts. In fact, that's where you get the word juggernaut from. And here they are, having to be put on a juggernaut. And people pushing them because they're not part they can't do anything. And do you remember how Jeremiah had to remind the people that God isn't dependent on you to help him somewhere? God sees, he hears, and he speaks, and he is intimately aware of every aspect of David's life, even things that are never broken. And he lies down and gets up. And the second in the absolute way uh, David is known to God, it says, David says, God knows his thoughts from afar. For me, it's a bit of a frightening idea. God knows his thoughts from afar. God knows what David is going to say even before he says it. David's son Solomon says in Proverbs 5.21 For a man's ways are in full view of the Lord. In other words, you see with all this, omniscience relates to the day-by-day reality of human life. It has practical consequences, not least because we need to guard our thoughts and our actions in that verse it says, Thy God seest me. He knows when we are anxious, when anxious thoughts fill our minds. And his spirit directs our attention to the words of 1 Peter 5, verse 7, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You see, because God knows not about you, he knows your anxious so part of the work of the Spirit is to remind you of verses of Scripture that you've heard, learned in Sunday school, or whatever. And God brings them back to your mind. Cast over your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And of course, I keep always reminding people of the, this fact, two types of casting. Fishermen cast their nets and their lines. But the idea is they'll always bring them back. But when you cast your cares in the Lord, you're not supposed to bring them back again. You let go. You let go. You see, if you keep going over your anxieties in your mind, as we all do, that's the problem, isn't it? To keep going over them. Then you've not really cast your curse on the Lord. You've brought them back again. Thirdly, God is omnipresent. In other words, he's everywhere. 
So return to the Psalm 139, that's the theme then, verses 7 to 10, where David admits that there's nowhere God is not. In our house amongst too many books, we have one entitled, um, There We Are Not. That's never true of God. We would never say, God's not. Whatever our circumstances, wherever they may take us, we can be sure God is there also. Now, it's important to understand, reading these words, that David is not the trying to work out, is there somewhere that he could escape from God? No, but rather he's comforting himself with the thought that no matter where he goes, God is there also. Because surely he would not want to escape from someone whom he calls his shepherd, who leads him by green pastures and still waters. Surely he wouldn't want to escape from God, who's described like that. So we too can take comfort from the fact that God is omnipresent, even if we may not use the word. Okay, we don't use it every day, do you? God is omnipresent or omniscient or omnipotent. You normally don't use those words, or at least not very often. But we can take comfort from them to enrich us. That's what they're there for. Of course, omnipresent. It is a technical word, but it doesn't rob it of the beauty of its meaning because it's a so-called technical word. It doesn't matter. It's wonderful, is it not? But God is everywhere. God is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. That's our great God. Finally, we come to the letter S where you've already worked out what that means. That applies. Savior, that's the S. And God, hallelujah, is mighty to save. And that's why the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is what John tells us in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 14. And that he had begun the chapter with uh, the most profound sentences of scripture. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. Then... It was in the same chapter of John. In verse 29, we read, the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That Jesus is the one who is described as the Word, the Word who is God. And that word took flesh and lived on earth. And he's described by John as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb without spot or blackish. In other words, God who is omnipotent Amnesia and omnipresent is also the saviour of the world. Hallelujah. Mm -hmm. I hope you feel like saying that, okay? And he is 
able to deal with the world's greatest problem, sin. As we look at what's happening in Israel, what are we seeing? Sinful human arms, don't we, in action? But our Lord Jesus Christ is a mighty Savior. And he is, as you know, only two the only one who's able to transform lives. To make people new and that alone fits them for him. That's the good news and the good news that God has called us to proclaim. So I trust that's what we think of God. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we rejoice even in those two words. You're almighty are also our gracious, loving Heavenly Father, full of mercy and compassion. And we thank you for that. We commend ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.